Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Welcome to The Gaggle, an AZ Central podcast where we chat with reporters, experts, and special guests to keep you fully informed on the state's political news. I'm Yvonne Winget Sanchez. I cover national politics for the Arizona Republic. And I'm Ron Hansen, also a national reporter for the Republic. In today's episode, we're talking about the economics of the proposed spending in President Joe Biden's legislative agenda. They're the physical and human infrastructure packages. Congress has yet to come to a consensus on the price tag of the human infrastructure package. And the physical infrastructure package, which was co-brokered by Senator Kirsten Sinema, is tied up as part of ongoing negotiations. Meanwhile, Congress still needs to raise the debt ceiling to approve borrowing for previous spending. The deadline for that is in early December. There are three separate but important things happening here. One is the $1.2 trillion physical infrastructure bill that passed the Senate and awaits action in the House. The second is the broader human infrastructure bill that's really the guts of President Biden's Build Back Better agenda. It began with a price tag north of $6 trillion, which was cut back to $3.5 trillion. Now Cinema and Democratic Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia are effectively requiring that bill to fall to $2.5 trillion or less. The third item is raising the debt ceiling, and that's a procedural step that Congress must approve, but it carries some drastic consequences if they don't. The third item is raising the debt ceiling. That's a procedural step that Congress must approve, but it carries some drastic consequences if they don't. Senate Republicans are saying they won't let Democrats hold a normal vote on doing so. Here to give us the ins and outs on the economic debates in Congress is Arizona State University economic professor Dennis Hoffman. Thanks for joining us, Dennis. It's great to be here. Let's go ahead and start with the physical infrastructure bill. It passed the Senate, obviously, with quite a lot of bipartisan support, but it hasn't received a vote yet in the House because many Democrats there want to ensure the Build Back Better bill also gets enacted. It would provide about $600 billion in new spending on things like building highways and bridges, railways and water systems, and it would expand broadband connectivity in areas within the city uh, where folks might be underserved and in rural America. Dennis, can you give us a sense of what this legislation will mean or could mean for a state like Arizona? Well, it's a big deal. Uh, It's a big deal in the sense that folks have been talking about physical infrastructure and social infrastructure for a, a long time, but especially physical infrastructure. Most people think when they hear the I word, they think of roads, bridges, sewer systems, broadband, that kind of thing. And um, budgets have been tight, uh, especially in a fiscally conservative state like in Arizona. 
uh, we're not inclined to tax ourselves to invest in these pursuits. Uh, we depend upon the federal government. So what would that bring us that brings us uh, needed water systems, sewer systems, broadband, especially to our rural areas, uh, roads, bridges. And, you know, people think that Arizona being relatively new doesn't need as much in the way of investments in those things. But you know, we're getting a little long in the tooth in, in some regards, uh, especially with roads and bridges. So the immediate impact is all the construction activity and the hustle and bustle about construction and the spend of those dollars. And that spend then swirls around in the state, creates even more jobs, more income. But down the road, businesses move to places where they can move products around and have great transportation. People move to states and regions where the transportation system works well. So down the road, it's productivity enhancing. So initially, you have this injection of dollars, much like you have when a, a new company moves to the state. But down the road, it's productivity enhancing because bolstering our infrastructure will attract even more people, more companies, and pave the way to sustained economic growth in the state. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about that just a bit more. In the near term, it looks like that would be a boost to the construction industry uh, for building some of these things uh, as they come online. Uh, it seems in the longer run that it could have a big effect on, say, tribal communities or small businesses in rural Arizona uh, as well. Um, is that a reasonable uh, expectation of this? Does, does this create uh, different winners over time? It does. And, uh, you know, when I think about the downstream effects, you know, my mind goes to, you know, water systems. Uh, the vice president was speaking uh, recently uh, about improvement in water systems, especially in the arid southwest where we um, sometimes struggle or increasingly are struggling uh, to meet water demands. And so all of those would be prudent investments today. Yes, they create this kind of initial effect as the spend takes place, but then they position the economy for further growth in the future. Okay, so it's expected to cost about $1.2 trillion. Uh, how do economists pencil, pencil out the value in something with that kind of price tag on it? First of all, the price tag, given that this is dollars spent over, um, you know, a, a number of years, the price tag to you and I, you know, when we start using the T word, that seems really high. Uh, but I find it ironic. You know, we fought the war on terror. We had major tax cuts. Uh, we have defense expenditure bills uh, that that pass annually. Um you know, despite the, the price tag of 1.2, if you chop that up by year, it's relatively minor in comparisons to investments we've been making in other places. Now, regardless 
uh, of the scale in terms of amount of dollars, it doesn't make any sense to make those investments if they don't pay off, if there's not a, a, an ROI, a return on this investment. And it's the return on this investment in terms of productivity, in terms of uh, ability to transport goods, uh, to transport people, uh, to attract businesses that's really going to be important. Um, sounds like a diversion, but we hear today about the supply chain interruptions. You know, our West Coast transport systems and our transport systems throughout the country, is if we want to include the trucks picking up goods or the trains, they just don't compare, actually, even with Asia right now. Asia's putting out products 24-7, you know, we're taking weekends off in the spite uh, of, of the situation where, uh, you know, we have this tremendous need for goods. So we need more efficient transportation systems, newer transportation systems in order to compete in a global economy. And all of this is kind of forward looking. All right. Well, let's talk a bit about the second part of uh, the president's agenda, the the Build Back Better bill. This is more expensive and it's a lot more expansive and it's frequently referred to as the human infrastructure component. This proposed package could address policy areas from expanding child uh, child care tax credits to reducing the price of prescription drug costs to providing free community college tuition. Um, the House Democrats want to see climate change mitigation in there, but Senator Manchin, uh, he's the Democrat from West Virginia. He hails from coal country. He's drawn the line against uh, some of these climate change mitigation proposals. It's worth noting that this is one area where Senator Sinema has actually made publicly clear uh, that she supports some of these provisions. What do you see as the biggest policy ideas in this package, which is obviously still pretty fluid? Well, I have a number of thoughts in this regard. Again, I want to underscore this notion that for whatever reason, when we talk about social infrastructure or investments in individuals, we spend as much time talking about the price tag as we do about the benefits of those investments. And I find that curious. I don't know if that's political going on here or whatever. But there has been a significant amount of individuals, typically from the Democratic Party, uh, over the last number of years that are seeking to increase the amount of investment in social infrastructure, in people, if you would. And to me, it begins with, you know, things like child care, uh, elder care. Uh, expansions of uh, Medicare benefits, addressing pollution, comes under the tag of climate change, which is off-putting or on-putting, depending upon your perspective on it. To me, cleaning up air, and actually Arizona, uh, surprising to some, struggles with you know things like asthma. Uh, I think that 
part of that traces back to the fact that 100 years ago when people moved here, they moved here with asthma conditions with the thought that you know, this would be a healthier environment for them. But regardless, they struggle with asthma. So if you can address carbon, if you can address clean air issues, you mitigate things like respiratory diseases, asthma. People have a higher quality of life. They're able to work more. They're able to go to school more. There's distinct benefits from this. So look, I, I am not a political uh, uh, economist per se. I'm an economist, but I observe the debate in Washington. And uh, what I observe in Washington is they take action when there's a perceived need. We fought the war on terror when there was a perceived need. How many trillions? I don't know, six, eight trillion over the, the decades that we fought it. Um, how much are we spending on defense today? How much are we spending in various places in government? Quite a bit. But there are needs among folks in the workforce, you know, young families, young working families, especially in a state like Arizona where they may be detached from relatives. It's tough for relatives to get uh, back to their families, if there's long distances, it's tough for them to get there to assist in child care. But young people are in need, working families are in need, even middle-aged families that are caught between this child care and elder care challenge that they have. There's some real needs out there. And I think rather than debating about price tags, uh, rather than debating about who gets what in some kind of compromise deal, we ought to be thinking about lining up what benefits these people need, what their needs are. We ought to think about lining up needs on the part of individuals and families and determining how many of those needs we can address in this particular legislation. This is about choices. Um, some people in Congress evidently find them hard choices. Um, but they're certainly no more difficult than the choices that some needy families have to make today that are doing without. Okay, so speaking of choices, one of the things that is guiding that uh is the price tag. We have seen the political reality playing out, especially from Senators Manchin and Senator Sinema, uh, heartburn over the price tag or what policy areas it encompasses. Um, and unspoken in this in some ways is the effect on the national debt. So what should people think about when they consider the estimate for the price tag on this kind of legislation, whether it's two and a half trillion dollars or in that neighborhood, uh, and how to square it with the existing debt we already have that has been growing? Well, the way to address debt, and um, I know that you all are thirsting for it, but I could give you a history lesson on federal debt in this country. At the end of World War II, and by the way, during World War II, debt exploded. We didn't debate the explosion of debt in the early 40s. 
because there was a war to win. Without exploding debt, we wouldn't be here in the same form that we were prior to the war. So debt as a share of GDP was 125% of GDP in, say, 1946. From 1946 all the way through 1980, when the Reagan administration uh, took office, the share of debt to GDP plummeted from 125% all the way down to 30%. Why? Because we didn't spend? We spent on Johnson's Great Society. We spent on the war in Vietnam. We spent on tons of things. But what we didn't do is dramatically cut taxes. Uh, taxes were cut slightly in the early 60s, uh, but more or less the tax rates stayed the same. The tax base grew along with the economy. There was enough revenue to kind of keep ahead of this uh, expenditure. I am concerned about the notion that we can, at the federal level, and we've seen recently at the state level, whenever times get good, um, there's a clamor for cutting more and more taxes. I think we do have to pay our bills. Uh, there is, as I understand, a plan to pay for this expenditure. Some folks don't like it because it targets uh, high-income individuals. Uh, but goodness, uh, I read the other day that during the pandemic alone, the top 1% appreciated $6 trillion in equities. Now, I don't know if that's off the bottom. I don't know exactly where that comes from. But the point is the amount of wealth that has been generated in the last few years actually you can draw pretty much a straight line from 2008, 2009 on equities, virtually straight up. And um, largely the, the top 1, 5, and 10% have benefited from that. Um, um, those people with 401ks and retirement plans have certainly benefited from that. But there's increasing disparities here. A social infrastructure investment that some of our politicians think has too high a price tag is really, in my opinion, an attempt to address some of those folks that got left behind. They didn't have the wherewithal to catch this tsunami of stock price appreciation. And so what government is doing, or at least some of the folks in, in the Congress are planning on doing, is extracting some of those dollars that were made in this frenzy and addressing some needs at the lower end. And I do have some thoughts, if you want to get into it, uh, about what consequences might befall us if we don't start worrying about this income inequality issue. So, oddly enough, that's our next question. Um, what is the price of inaction um, what is the price of doing nothing on some of these big issues, particularly when we're talking about the climate? Well, I'm not a climate scientist, uh, but I do 
see things um, that appear to be the manifestation of climate change. It makes sense to me based upon the science as I understand it. So there are certainly adverse consequences from inaction on climate. Uh, candidly, I'm an old guy. I probably won't see that. But I spend a lot of time with my grandsons, and they are passionate on this issue. And they're confused on this issue. And they haven't been particularly brainwashed. They read everything. They've just come to this conclusion based upon what they read and how they think and what they observe. So I think inaction on that front has long-term consequences, especially for us folks here in the Southwest, where we experience hotter and hotter summers, uh, drier and drier winters. Um, you know, hopefully we can be blessed with a monsoon season like we just had, but I've been here 40 years. That's the first time we've ever seen anything like that. So um, in terms of climate, the consequences are big. I worry about social unrest, social unrest caused by income inequality. You know, some people don't even think about this, but some of the, the strife and the conflict that existed 50, 100, 200 years ago across the planet was caused by, to a large degree, income inequality. And I fear that more and more income inequality uh, exists today than I think at any time in my lifetime. The rich and the uber-rich um, have a tremendous amount of wealth and power and control over our systems because of the way capitalism works. And I'm not out to change from a capitalist system to a socialist system. That is not what I'm talking about. But what I am talking about is the recognition on the part of the uber wealthy uh, that they have things really pretty good. And um, if they don't address the needs of the huge majority of individuals that are left behind from this process, uh, that we could see more and more you know, civil conflict. Um, I, I think, uh, you know, populism uh, feeds on this type of inequality issue. Uh, more and more populist politicians that try to capture uh, the hearts and minds of, of this, this majority of individuals that might drive us into decisions that are counterproductive, that are anti-corporate. I've talked about this a lot in Arizona. Arizona's a real pro-corporate state. And I know this because I grew up in a in in I grew up in the state of Michigan where despite the benefits that the corporations brought to many workers, the, the union presence was strong and people were concerned about it. Uh, about the power of corporations. There's not concern, as much concern in a state like Arizona, a right-to-work state, and I think that we've prospered as a result. But this may not go on forever. 
if people have the perception, people that are left behind in this state or across the states, if people get left behind, they will rise up and they'll vote against them. Okay, so that's kind of a longer term concern of yours. Let's talk to some this third uh, issue that seems to be uh, on the horizon now, and it's much more near term. Uh, this involves the debt ceiling vote. Uh, this has been something of a technicality historically, but in recent years, it's become sort of a partisan bargaining chip. Um, in this case, we are seeing Senate Republicans who are saying they will not vote to uh, raise the debt ceiling. They want Democrats to do it themselves uh, through reconciliation. That's the special procedure that would allow Republicans to hold votes on whatever crosses their minds, which usually seems to be politically painful for Democrats. But what does this mean for consumers? If Congress fails to raise the debt ceiling, America would default on its government debt for the first time in history. How big a deal is that to ordinary people and why? Well, their first thought is, it's not going to affect me. But they're wrong. The disruption in the international financial markets would be huge. Uh, any kind of thought about a leadership position internationally, especially from a financial perspective, that's out the window. I mean, the, the, the fact that Congress doesn't realize the arithmetic around tax cuts and spending. And I would hold the Republicans responsible, certainly for the 2018 tax cuts. And the, then, then we have um, the, the pandemic response, which is shared responsibility. Mr. Trump certainly passed the first round, Mr. Biden the second round, but both houses in, in Congress supported the, the aid. Uh, and now we're talking about um, expenditure, infrastructure expenditures, both physical and social, big spending programs. But we also have had big spending on the war on terror. We've had big spending on defense. So the politically popular things are to spend more, especially in places where people want the spending, and of course, cutting taxes. You know, vote for me, I'll cut your taxes. Those are the political popular things. Um, you know, voting for a debt ceiling, even though that's the direct result, more and more debt is the direct result of those two actions. You know, logically, what we should be doing is providing for additional debt every time we pass a tax cut or an expenditure initiative. It ought to go part and parcel with the initiative. Instead, we get told fairy tales, like tax cuts will pay for themselves. They almost always don't pay for themselves. And certainly the most recent one did not. Over the past many, many months, we have been watching political brinksmanship over uh, the physical infrastructure bill and the human infrastructure bill, with Senator Sinema being a key player in, uh, in some of those maneuvers. What kind of economic consequences come from the political maneuverings that we see coming out of Congress, if any? Well, again, I'm not a politician. Um, I have observed the debate you've described. But the needs are real. 
The benefits from investments are real. The consequences of inaction, I think, are very real and looming. So regardless of brinkmanship or votes or trying to position oneself for future run, I think what ought to be discussed is, are we going to meet people's needs? Are we going to meet the needs of infrastructure? Are we going to meet the needs of climate change or not? And as an economist, I would judge uh, my politicians on how well they figured out a way to meet those needs. Follow-up question, though, to that. Yeah, I have to think that countries like China are watching this debate play out. And the failure by Congress and this administration to sort of quickly pass the president's agenda um, seem to be providing quite a bit of space for uh, folks there to really sort of leverage to their own benefit. I think the country is viewed in different lights depending upon how well we're able to put plans and actions in place and whether or not looking back those plans and actions made sense. Um, the tax cut, for example, that was passed in 2018, we didn't take a poll of every Republican that voted. That was a razor-thin margin, by the way. We didn't take a poll of every Republican on the merits of that tax cut. Or I don't recall much debate on the nuance of particular elements of the tax cut. When it was time to demonstrate action, every Republican lined up and voted. And um, they moved the tax cut through. And uh, that was generally uh, touted as an accomplishment from uh, that Congress and, the, and President Trump at the time. The, what seems to be just arithmetically going on in the Congress today is the inability, despite their razor-thin majority, of the Democrats to do the same thing. Um, and again, I understand Democrats have different preferences in terms of what they want. But don't tell me Republicans didn't have different preferences around the margin of that tax cut package. It wasn't a perfect tax cut package, but they passed it. And uh, I find it kind of ironic uh, that one party is able to 